Hello, and welcome to my podcast, You Are Your Uterus. I'm Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and this is episode three, and it is entitled Gender Constructs and Christianity. And what I'm going to be discussing in this episode is that Christianity, and specifically the church fathers, the men who developed commentary on Christian doctrine, created a situation in which the Bible was used to construct a very specific definition of women. Women are temptresses. Women are evil. Women are morally inferior. Women are intellectually inferior. Women have to be controlled by men. Otherwise, they will create chaos in society. Now, the Christian culture very much drew on the roots of the Greeks, certainly Aristotle. The story of Pandora is very reminiscent of what we're going to talk about with Eve, and created a culture where women, by definition, because of her nature, must only function within the confines of a private world, one controlled by men, and where she will have no public role whatsoever. I will be discussing Eve, and I will also be discussing the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene. Now, the Virgin Mary did not start out as the Virgin Mary. The oldest sources we have do not mention the birth of Christ and Mary as a virgin. That will come later. And interestingly, the virgin birth is going to be a big part of the transition from the early church to a church that worshipped Jesus as a god and a church that gradually focuses more on his divinity and less on his humanity. Um, and despite many sources that discuss Jesus's brothers, the church will gradually make Mary a perpetual virgin. And that is very important to a church doctrine, because if you think about it, you can't really be worshiping a god who was born the regular way by a regular woman. We're also going to be looking at Mary Magdalene, who had a complete revision done on her by the church. And it was a revision that lasted close for 2,000 years. She becomes a prostitute who Jesus drives demons out from and who saves her from her life of prostitution. But that is not Mary Magdalene at all. The sources we do have tell us of a very different woman who was the apostle to the apostles, who was a wealthy follower of Jesus, who was close to him, and who in many respects was more spiritually advanced than some of the other apostles. Now, what the church will do is conflate several different characters that appear in the New Testament to come up with one character, this prostitute, Mary as the prostitute. And you have to ask yourself, why did the church do that? Why was it important to change her? Well, because you don't want women to have important roles in the church. I'll be discussing throughout this episode the reality that the early Christian church is very different from the Christian church that becomes an institution. Christianity is around for about 200 years, and you see during that 200 years competing Christianities and competing views of Jesus and his followers and what happened. But by the end of the third century, Christianity was very tightly woven into the fabric of Roman society. And by the early fourth century, when the Emperor Constantine sees the Cairo cross in the sky before an important battle that makes him the single emperor of Rome, 
Christianity is not yet the official religion of the empire, but Constantine subsidizes it. He recognizes church men as important for his empire, for his politics. And he also will call the Council of Nicaea together and will also call together bishops to decide what exactly is going to be your canon. In other words, what's going to be your official books of this religion? And by the end of the fourth century, the church is the Christianity is the only religion that is legal in the empire. So from 383 CE on, Christianity is entrenched in Western society. It becomes the most important cultural force in Western society. And that force will last for 1600 years until Martin Luther and the Reformation. And those religions are going to be biblically based even more stridently than Catholicism was. And one of the things I'm going to talk about in a subsequent uh, episode about witches is how much reliance on the actual words of the Bible created this idea that the devil was always everywhere trying to snare men to do evil. And the witch hunts of early modern Europe, which lasted for 200 years... The Bible is going to be used as a way to explain why women are witches and why they need to be controlled. Okay, but that's a separate subject. Uh, I also want to make a very important distinction. I am a historian, and the sources that I'm using today are sources that people use for their religion and their theology. But I'm not discussing the theology per se. I'm using the Bible and the biblical stories that were used by men during the first several hundred years of the church's existence to establish a specific identity for women. And it's an identity that's lesser, and it's an identity that requires male control. And what's really interesting is that, in actuality, do the texts really say what they say. Well, when you look at the language of the text themselves, for example, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve and the story of the fall from grace, it's the way those stories were interpreted to create this lesser identity for women. And very importantly, subsequent women, beginning at the end of the Middle Ages and well into the 19th and 20th centuries, there will be women who are going to refute these interpretations. But it's very hard to offer alternate interpretations when for 15, 1600 years, the interpretation of the New Testament and the writings of the church fathers all created this very negative definition of women. So we're going to look at the story of Eve, and we're going to look at the, the story of the two Marys to come uh, up with a gender construct of woman that is very negative, is misogynistic, and it's the basis upon which Western civilization is going to justify and explain the lesser role of women in society. And lest you think that these stories don't have importance, you're going to have Supreme Court justices in the United States refer to the creator and religious ideas about women in order to justify the continued exclusion of women from public life. Okay, I am going to start with Adam's first wife, Lilith. 
Now, I'm bringing this up because it's something that isn't often included, or a lot of people don't know about it. And Lilith was Adam's wife prior to Eve. And her existence and the story of her comes from the book of Genesis and the fact that there are two creation accounts. In Genesis, you have one creation account that discusses God creating Adam of at the same time, man and woman he created together. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now, the text puts Lilith's creation after these words in Genesis that it is not good for man to be alone. So he forms Lilith out of the clay from which he made Adam. So they're equals. They're both made of the same substance. And as far as Lilith was concerned, they're equals. And so I'm going to read to you from this account. After God created Adam, who was alone, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. He then created a woman from Adam from the earth, as he had created Adam himself, and called her Lilith. But Adam and Lilith began to fight. She said, I will not lie below. And he said, I will not lie beneath you, but only on top, for you are fit only to be in the bottom position where I am to be the superior one. And Lilith said to Adam, we are equal to each other inasmuch as we were both created from the earth. But they didn't listen to each other and Lilith flies off and will not come back. Now, there's more to the story, but ultimately, Lilith then becomes a, a very dominant female demon, and she kills little children. And so all these subsequent interpretations of give us uh, a story in which this woman is going to turn into something evil because she does not obey a man. Okay, now let's turn to Eve. Eve, like Pandora, is the source of evil for the world. And the church fathers are going to write about women in ways that are very re reminiscent of what I talked about in my second episode about the Greeks, where women are seen as in need of control because their nature is one of lust and dirtiness and disobedience, and therefore she has to be controlled. Now, there are two creation stories. As I mentioned earlier, one of the creation stories has God created man and woman together. But the story of Eve that has is the one that is most commented upon and is the one in which most of the church fathers focus on is the fact that women were made from Adam's rib, that she is secondary. She comes after Adam and is created to be his inferior. Now, Paul said that women is, are made in, not in God's image, but in man's image. Paul, the apostle Paul states that man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Because man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And these are from the writings of Paul, who is our, really the earliest source of Christianity. So just from the get-go, from that beginning creation point, 
Paul interprets that story in a way that makes Eve lesser, that her creation is secondary to man's creation, that she's not made in the image of God, and that she wasn't made for anything other than for Adam. So Paul, again, earliest sources in Christianity, in many ways he is the architect of Christianity because it is Paul in his letters and later commentaries on Paul that really begins to focus on Jesus's divinity and that Jesus's resurrection is something that was for all human beings and washes away uh, the sin that human beings involve themselves in in the fall. So the fall is really where the church fathers are going to have all sorts of ammunition in their interpretations. Now, again, I just want to make a point of saying that as early as the 15th century, we have women writing treatises reinterpreting the story. So there are other ways to see the story. But for Paul and for the subsequent church fathers, and, and by that I mean men like St. Augustine, who a lot of people may have heard on. Other church fathers are of a man named Jerome and Tertullian, who I'm going to be quoting. And these are men who all interpreted what's in the New Testament and what's in the letters of Paul to come up with a very clear understanding of the nature and role of women. So in a letter to Timothy, Paul also says, let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit not women to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Wow, you definitely have a very clear idea of what women were created for, and also that she is the transgressor. Now, this story of the fall and creation, but mostly the fall, really solidifies for the church fathers the need for women to be silent and obey men. Now, why is what is this interpretation of Eve? Well, let's go back to the story. Story is pretty famous. I'm not going to read it from Genesis, but Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden and they're living happily in their ignorance, if you will, until a serpent enters the garden and tells Eve, oh, hey, you see that tree over there, the tree of knowledge? That's the fruit you want. And Eve says, but we don't need that fruit. We've got all this great stuff here already in the Garden of Eden. But when you are tempted to to eat something that will make you akin to a god in the sense that you will now know the difference between good and evil, that is something that takes, in my view, courage. But for the church fathers, it is a clear indication of Eve's inability to resist temptation and Eve's inability to not be deceived because Adam wasn't deceived and Eve's inability to obey. So she's inherently disobedient. Well, as subsequent women who comment on this could say, well, 
Couldn't you also say that she was just curious and that curiosity and intellectual curiosity are part of the human condition? And that wouldn't God have known that his creation would have eaten that fruit when he told them not to? All I can think of is a little kid. And it's like, if you tell them not to do something, they're going to do it. And I think that's true of human beings. It's very hard for us not to do something when we're specifically told, oh, you can't do this. Well, now I kind of want to. So rather than focusing on anything like that, essentially what the church fathers did is they turned Eve's act of disobedience into an act that ultimately brought down man. And I don't really care about women, but it brought back, brought down men. So when Eve and Adam eat from the forbidden fruit, what do they discover? They discover their nakedness. And it will be St. Augustine, the great 5th century church father, probably the most important church father of early Christianity, and maybe even until you get to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Augustus and then other church fathers will build on this. What Eve's act did was destroy man because Adam, according to Augustine, is mind and reason and rationality. But when Eve gave him the fruit and they discovered their nakedness, she corrupted Adam by becoming a temptress because she is now seen as flesh and as something tempting. So, you know, Adam sees Eve naked and in just retribution for partaking of this fruit, he loses control. The man, the personification of mind and spirit, loses control of his body. What do I mean by that? I mean he has an erection. And an erection is something that is uncontrollable. So man's inability to control his body is his is punishment, and that punishment comes because of Eve. So women are always going to be seen as the temptresses. Women are always going to be seen as an object of lust. And so all women are Eve. Eve is the great polluter of mankind because like in the story of Prometheus and the fire, before this man was happily living in this golden age with plenty of food and water and and all of the beauties of the earth. But when he gets this knowledge, it ultimately becomes a punishment for him because that knowledge means that women are always going to be there tempting him and creating a situation in which he cannot control his body no matter how much his rational mind wants to. As I said, this is the interpretation of the church fathers. Now, think about this too. What is Eve's punishment? Well, she clearly is going to have to submit to her husband. He is always going to have authority over her. And God makes it clear that in childbirth, Eve is going to experience excruciating pain. So childbirth, painful, painful childbirth is going to be part of Eve's punishment. Now look at where that punishment is located. Should I say it? The uterus. 
because <laughs> it is going to be the fact that your uterus is going to grow from the size of a pear to the size of, I don't know, oh, big, big, big piece of, I can't even think of it, grow very, very large. And then out of that, that uterus is going to have to push what is essentially the size of a watermelon out of a very, very small hole. So yeah, that's going to hurt. But again, it's focused on a woman's biology. Now, lest you think this story of pain and childbirth is something that nobody pays attention to anymore, I want to give you a rendition of a story one of my students told me years ago. This was probably maybe 10, 12 years ago. She was a probably a, a student in her 20s, and she had a child. And I always encouraged her to bring her daughter to class. But she told me a story of being in the office of her obstetrician, and there was a man sitting there, presuming waiting for his wife or partner. And the man asked my student if she was going to use pain medication when she gave birth. Now, first of all, that's really kind of none of his business, isn't it? But for anybody who's ever been pregnant, you'll know that you then become public property and everybody feels like they can touch you or they can give you lots of advice. But this man asked her about that because he had a very specific opinion. And that when my student responded that, yes, she was definitely going to be using an epidural, he admonished her because she's supposed to bring forth children in pain. So <laughs> as I said, this story, this punishment of Eve's is centered on her biology. And not only is she going to bring forth children in pain, but the church fathers are going to build on what one saw in the Old Testament and with the Greeks, that one of the functions of the uterus, specifically menstruation, makes a woman unclean. Jerome, one of those church fathers I mentioned, said, nothing is so unclean as a woman in her periods. What she touches, she causes to become unclean. And some early Christian congregations, especially those still wedded to some of their Hebrew traditions, separated females during worshiping services. And certainly by the third century, the 200s CE, women who were deaconesses or in any way had some official role in the church, we're not allowed to go near the altar because again, it's going to be unclean. And of course, all those old stories about women and their menstrual blood get repeated over and over. Now, the church fathers looked at women as lesser. And in fact, the specific actions by Eve condemned all women. And I would like to read a little bit from probably one of my favorite church fathers, a church father named Tertullian. Now, Tertullian wrote in the second century CE and wrote about the need for women to constantly be reminded of where they came from and what they did. So Tertullian will tell women that you should be going around in morning clothes and neglect your appearance 
because you shouldn't be adorning yourselves. Now, a lot of scholars say that Tertullian is writing in the second century CE and the early third century CE, and he's addressing a lot of his comments to Roman women who were converts to Christianity and reminding them that this is not happy, fun, you know, partying Rome, that you are such that you have to, in many ways, hide yourself. So he tells them that they should give the impression of a mourning and repentant Eve so that by adopting the clothing of a penitent, you might atone more fully for what derives from Eve, namely the disgrace of the first sin and the hatred which followed because of the fall of the human race. In sorrows and care you will give birth, woman, and be dependent on your husband, and he is Lord over you. Do you not know that you are Eve? Whew. And then here is my absolute favorite part of Tertullian. The judgment of, of God upon this sex lives on in this age. Therefore, necessarily, the guilt should live on also. You are the gateway of the devil, you are the one who unseals the curse of that tree, and you are the first one to turn your back on the divine law. You are the one who persuaded him whom the devil was not capable of corrupting. You easily destroyed the image of God, Adam. Because of what you deserve, that is death, even the Son of God had to die. And do you still think of adorning yourself above and beyond your tunics of animal skin? Ooh, okay. So in the great debate over who killed Jesus, whether you point to the Romans or the Jewish hierarchy, Tertullian basically says it's women because we wouldn't have had to have a Jesus if we hadn't fallen from grace. And that is women's fault. So that is Tertullian. That is the way he understands Eve. And ultimately, a woman as temptress and as someone who is guilty and should constantly bear that guilt is a big part of this Christian foundation, as is the view of sex. Now, as I mentioned, when Adam discovered Eve's nakedness and lost control of his ability to be rational and control his body, that meant that there's going to be sex in the world now. Well, sex is not seen as a good thing. The church fathers were all talk about how it is not good to touch a woman, says St. Paul, and then they'll interpret it as, well, touching a woman is bad. And even Augustine, who recognizes that the highest form of life for anyone is to live celibate or for women as a virgin. But in doing so, that's a very, very small segment of women who and men who can do that. Therefore, one is going to have to have sex, but in a very specific way, within the confines of marriage and only for the purposes of procreation. Sex is not supposed to be something that's fun. And in fact, Augustine has at one point a comment about how even a husband and wife have to descend into a certain amount of sadness in order to engage in the sex act for procreation. So Eve is the model. Forget the idea of interpreting the Bible literally. There are 
clearly people who do that, but it's that's not the point here. The point here is Eve as the example of woman. Eve as the example of what the nature of woman is and the consequences of Eve's act and what it did to humanity. Now, I find it interesting that Eve is still very, very much utilized in modern culture. I have students do a little exercise and I say, you know, go look through your ads in your magazines, go online and look at ads and tell me how, or even album art and all sorts of places, you see Eve, you see women with apples, you see women with snakes. I had a beautiful cover of the New York Times Magazine, the fashion and beauty section, and Emily Blunt, who's a fabulous actress, is on the cover. And she has these red, red lips, and she has a snake necklace on. It's this beautiful, looks like marcasite with some rubies, but it's a snake. I have ads for perfume, for Altoids, for Smirnoff vodka, all using Eve. Oh, also a great one where with Pamela Anderson for PETA, where she has like fig leaves over her parts and all of these PETA ads are great because they're all like, go back to Eden. In other words, be naked, don't wear animal. There was an old show back in the 2000s called Desperate Housewives. Some of you or your moms might've watched it. Almost every ad for the new season or opening credits has Eve. In one ad, the five women who are in the show are laying in a, a huge bed of apples. In another one, the term desperate housewives is written across an apple with an E figure when her fig leaf. Shakira on one of her album covers in the 2000s uses Eve. Oh, America's Next Top Model had a promotion with Eve. Tyra Banks dressed just over and over again. Oh, oh, a great ad for Discover Magazine where they were promoting new sex drugs and they have a woman reaching for an apple. So uh, that's just some of them. So, so do your own little little research and ask yourself, why is Eve such, such so still such a powerful figure for advertisers? And it's it, the fact that we're still identified that way. Now, as I said, I'm going to be talking in later lectures about the different women who are going to write about Eve and engage in what we call a reclaiming where there's going to be commentaries that interpret the Bible differently. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, my great hero of the 19th century, will write the woman's Bible and will completely um, discard the old patriarchal interpretation of Eve. You have the Grimke sisters, who I'm also going to talk about, who want to interpret the Bible differently. You had medieval women who interpreted the Eve story differently. And so it's important that once women begin getting educated and once women begin talking about the oppressiveness of society, they're going to go back and say, hey, you guys, you, you can't use, you, you, this is not the correct interpretation. Unfortunately, that isn't the way things turned out. Now, I'd like to turn now to our two Marys. And by that, I mean Mary, Virgin Mary and the and Mary Magdalene. Let's start with the Virgin Mary. 
Now, there is a lot of misunderstanding about her. Most people think, oh, yeah, she's the mother of God. She's a virgin. And interestingly, when we hear sightings of, of gods or religious figures, the Virgin Mary is a very common sight that people report. And there's no question that as her in her role as a mother, she very much speaks to women. It's a mother who lost her son. But what's interestingly interesting is that Mary and the virgin birth were later additions. The earliest gospel in the New Testament is the gospel of Mark. Nope, nothing in there about Jesus's birth or the virgin Mary. That doesn't come until the later gospels of Luke and Matthew. But those are the only places where we really see it. And one has to understand that as the New Testament was being codified and put into its official form, other Gospels were left out. So, let me just tell you quickly about other Gospels. In the Gospel of James, the infancy Gospel, which was written maybe around 4 BC, the author is said to be James, Jesus's brother. And in fact, Matthew, Mark, Galatians all talk about Jesus's brother. Josephus, the great first century historian, writes of James's death at the hands of a high priest and tells us he is Jesus's brother. So if Mary was a virgin, she definitely had other kids. And here's what happens, is that Christianity goes through a period of growth in which specific identities and specific parts of the Jesus story shift in order to accommodate the interpretation of Jesus as God. And so the idea that Mary uh, was a virgin, and in fact, the church makes her a perpetual virgin. In other words, she's a virgin even after as she gives birth to Jesus and even after, that becomes one of the key dogmas of the Marian worship. Okay, so Mary Magdalene, as she appears in these other Gospels, is a story of a woman who understands Jesus's message, who understands the importance of what he's saying. And one of the things we notice in the non-canonical gospels, um, in the gospel of Philip in particular, is that there's some tension between Mary Magdalene and especially Peter. And in the gospel of Philip, we kind of get a picture of Mary Magdalene as someone who's closer to Jesus than any of the other disciples. And Peter is mad at that and often challenges Mary and her place um, among uh, the disciples. But there is no question that Jesus considered her very important and that his teaching is at a level that which he thought she could understand it better than the men. And especially after the resurrection, Peter says, you don't know what you're doing. You don't understand. You're a woman. You can't possibly understand what Jesus's message was. You cannot uh, in any way interpret what, what Jesus does. Now, again, I, I really urge you to take a look at some of this stuff if you're interested in it, because 
really what we are looking at is the gender dynamic that these men who are part of a patriarchal society don't understand why Jesus sees Mary Magdalene as different. But think about it. Mary Magdalene was at the crucifixion. Where were the other disciples? Oh yeah, they were in hiding. Mary Magdalene was the first one at the resurrection. And what the church did in, in the New Testament is they kind of diminish Mary Magdalene's role as the first one to see the resurrected Jesus and make her more of like a, almost like a, a, a re, not a reporter, but just someone who's come, oh, look, look what happened and leaves it to them to interpret. And that's not true. What we're looking at is we're looking at a woman who understood what the resurrection meant and uh, understood the importance of what Jesus's message was. But we can't keep it that way. So in the 6th century, Pope Gregory the Great, in a sermon, conflated three different Marys. Mary Magdala, who had the demons expelled, the other Mary, who was a prostitute, and yet a third Mary. And he created them all into one Mary, the prostitute that Jesus saves. So again, Mary Magdalene is in many ways really, really important to understanding how the church understood the role of women, because here we have evidence, solid factual evidence, that this woman played a prominent role in the ministry of Jesus and, and in spreading the message of the resurrection. And yet it's, it's whitewashed, it's diminished, it's taken out. We have to go to these unofficial sources but sources that are primary sources and have, are sources that have been used by scholars in order to find that. And again, you have to ask why. It wasn't until 1969 that the church finally said, oh, by the way, you remember that sermon that Gregory made in the 6th century? Yeah, okay, that wasn't right. Oh, so let's see, how many years is that? That's a thousand, what, 1,300 years later? One has to wonder. So uh, I'd like to conclude this episode with one mention. I'm going to say a name and I want you to think about what pops into your head. I'm going to say the name Jezebel. Wow, that's a cool name. Immediately, you should think of it negatively because Jezebel is from the Bible and is in Hebrew scripture. And uh, a Jezebel is someone who doesn't know her place and who involves herself in things that women aren't supposed to be involved with, politics, religion. The idea is, is that Jezebel is something that you should not aspire to, and you certainly shouldn't name your baby girl that. Interestingly, there's a great old Betty Davis movie called Jezebel, and it's a scandal because she wears a red dress to an all-white ball. And so Jezebel has come down to us. If somebody ever refers to you, oh, you're a Jezebel, you're, you're not the kind of woman you're supposed to be, quiet, submissive, obedient, recognizing your inferiority. That kind of woman is the woman that dominates the 19th century and 19th century America. All of these foundations that I've covered in the last two episodes are going to come together and create this foundation upon which the women of 19th century America are going to say, wait a minute, 
this isn't really the nature and role of women. And that will be episode four uh, next time called The 19th Century Feminine Ideal. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History, and I invite you to get in touch with me. Please go to my Facebook page, Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and please leave any comments or suggestions that you might have, or feel free to email me at drvdlt at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. This has been a production of the Yali Christina Company.